well, commercially, normally, I'd say register at privateequity.com and we can work with you. But uh, the, the genuine advice is that what you started with, with your question on values, is the most important thing. Before you spend money on anything, before you meet with anybody, no, none of the clients that have approached me, the 100 plus, had their values, their mission, their objectives documented. And I think that until you know that wealth creation story, how the wealth was created, why it was created, what the values are, where you want to go, what new reality you want to live in, and you just have that conversation with your family, your spouse, your yourself several times, and you put that on a one-page piece of paper, until you have that, you shouldn't be hiring people and investing in anything. Hey, it's Matt, and this is Pass the Secret Sauce. Richard C. Wilson is a third-generation Eagle Scout and founder of the Family Office Club, the largest community of ultra-wealthy families globally with over 2,000 registered investors. Family Office Club is an investor platform that, in combination with their investor advisory division, Centimillionaire Advisors, LLC, and PrivateEquity.com, provides investors with access to direct investments and virtual family office solutions. So I had a pretty uh, typical American family, I guess. I had a brother, two sisters, parents that actually stayed together. So I don't know if that's typical or not, honestly, but kind of a classic family structure, I guess. But most importantly, around the dinner table, uh, we we're always having fun, but also there's kind of a get it figured out yourself type attitude of if you don't know how to do something, go figure it out. You want to buy a toy and you got to pick up pine cones for a penny of pine cone or that, that type of uh, inattitude at the dinner table. Very cool. So do you think that your parents sort of instilled a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit in you with doing the chores and, you know, you need to, to do the work to be able to earn, earn your uh, income? Yeah, for sure. I'm a third generation Eagle Scout. They always had me in sports. So when I do a strengths finder, my top two out of three strengths are competition and game playing. Okay. And uh, I played a lot of games growing up, but also, you know, I started businesses when I was in uh, middle school, when I was in high school. By the time I got out of high school, I already started four businesses and built a few websites. <laughs> and I grew up around my dad running a business. So I'd go to business meetings with him. I'd go to his office. I'd go to client meetings with him and sit there and listen. So I think that had a pretty huge impact. I was reading the Inc. magazine, you know, when I was in grade school and middle school. So I think that all affected me a lot. Very cool. What was your first business that you started? See, the first one was lawn mowing business. So that was just a typical yard care business. But what was funny is that I got aggressive with the marketing and started stuffing mailboxes with my flyers. And apparently that's illegal. So I got a call. <laughs> I, was, I was doing my homework on the floor and I got a call and I answered and it was like social services, like government division or whatever. And they called to inform the household that there had been reports of illegal mailbox stuffing. And luckily I got the call instead of my parents. Yeah. And then the more, more interesting business after that was uh, selling long distance telephone service. It was like through a multi-level marketing opportunity that my dad paid the 800 bucks for me to get involved in. And I just cold called through the uh, directory of everybody in my school and called their parents and said, hey, I go to school with your daughter. Do you want to buy long distance telephone service? Oh, and uh, I tried to sell them on that. So I think that was, that was a fun experience. <laughs> that's great. You mentioned your strengths finder. It, it seems like you've done a lot of setup work. I, I went through your website and that you've got your core values set up. I find that a lot of people don't necessarily go through those initial setup steps 
how valuable do you think, again, establishing your core values and establishing your strengths, how valuable do you think that that work is, especially, you know, when you are just starting in, in a business? Yeah, I think it's so valuable. It should change all of your focus should just be on your strengths or what a Dan Sullivan would call your unique ability. <clears throat> and I think that the big blind spot for people is that everyone knows that a company should have values. And so everyone's tired of hearing that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Every company needs to have values. I've heard Zappos and everyone talk about it. But what's interesting is that the ultra wealthy, when they set up family offices, they oftentimes delay and then figure out, oh, the family office needs to have values. Otherwise the wealth is going to destroy each other. People don't talk to each other anymore. The wealth will dissipate. But then if you take it a step further and say, okay, well, that doesn't cost anything to do either. But then if everyone believes that having values can grow a company and help play defense against family members tearing each other apart, why doesn't every family in America have values above their kitchen table for their family or for you individually? It costs absolutely nothing. It costs less than your Hulu subscription or Netflix. And yet nobody I know has values for their personal family and has those posted at home about where they eat dinner and talk to their kids about the values. And to me, that's just like so backwards after I thought about it, that we put that in place for our family and uh, we talk about it at our events a lot. So I'm glad, I'm glad you brought it up. Maybe you brought it up because you see me bringing it up uh, or maybe just by chance, but uh, it's one of the most valuable things I think we could, you know, bring up here in the interview. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I've actually got our core values. We have cool. gone through this a number of different times. So I have my core values sitting right next to me. So I look at them all the time. And, you know, it even helps with the decision making, the decision hierarchy. Like for us, again, we're in real estate. So one of the the, the most valuable asset, I guess you can say, is the community. So we, we've gone through and separated this all out. So kind of a decision hierarchy as well. So if, if we have to make a decision between a member and the community is more important than you know, one single member. So again, it, it helps right. you know, all of all of that all helps with you know, your ultimate decision making. And I, I, right. I think that it's really interesting too, that you created a core or uh, family values. Uh, I saw that as well on your pieces. So kudos to you for that. I actually heard one other person, I think you're the only other person that I've heard of, but one other person actually made place or like menus or uh, placemats sure. uh, with their core values yeah. on there. So it's, again, it's always cool. you know, right in front of the kids. So I thought that was kind That's of awesome. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So right now we're in the middle of a black swan event and these have happened throughout history. Obviously this is a little bit unique with this current one. What would you say your your clients are doing right now or how are they responding to this event is it sort of business as usual or is this something that they're shifting their focus or shifting mindset sure. into I think there's a few different things one it could be a good time to acquire talent if somebody's not being treated too well at their current company they can see how well of a carekeeper that employer really is and they might be able to take talent away from people who are not as well capitalized the other thing is that they might be able to negotiate down suppliers for bulk purchases so i've got one friend who just filled his warehouse with all the raw materials he needs for the next 12 months and he was able to go to his suppliers and say hey look you probably need revenue this month how about you sell me at 50 percent off and i'll just put down this whopper of a purchase order with you and then that way it's good for you it's good for me and we're going to be turning over our office lease here soon, but it made me think to go to my landlord and say, well, let's think if I had seven months left on my lease, 
can I just prepay you six months now and get a mm-hmm. month of free rent? Cause you might need that cash now mm-hmm. because some people are not going to be paying your rent on time this month. And so I think those are a few things. Another thing is that uh, if you can think about companies that did well before the crisis and then now during the crisis have done exceedingly well, and then afterwards they'll go back to having a relatively normal business. Maybe they'll be up 10, 20% afterwards on some residual business, but businesses that could do really well during this, I think are getting attention by my clients and people are wanting to look at those types of opportunities because I think that there's going to be more virus scares, kind of like the naming of hurricanes. And they're going to say, Oh, here's the, whatever virus coming out of the Philippines and here's this other virus coming out of Brazil. And then, you know, politicians and people get criticized for not locking down faster while other people are going bankrupt over lockdowns and argue that like this, the uh, governor in Texas saying it's worse than dying. Most people don't say that extreme of a thing, but whatever side you're on, I think it's not going to be the last time that we have to go through such a thing. So I think that to have something in an investment portfolio or something in your business that you can just triple down on when something like this happens is a good counter cyclical type investment to be considering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Any suggestions that come to mind as to you know those types of investments that would be viable during times like this? Sure. I mean, I have seen that subscriptions that cost under $20 a month have not been hit too bad, at least from our holdings, from holding to my clients. It seems like when people are looking at their budget, you know, saving seven bucks a month by pulling the plug on, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure Netflix maybe has lost some subscribers. They probably also gained some from a bunch of board people. Mm-hmm. And so that I think that uh, low subscriptions, I think steady through the storm, uh, kind of under the radar, but things that do well, obviously mostly in the healthcare space or in the decontamination or services, cleaning services, related spaces. One of my clients makes uh, disinfectant wipes and hand alcohol type products. So they've been in that business for 15 years. I think importantly, investors want to go into things that already had a real business before this, not somebody who's flipping face masks in a warehouse somewhere. Yeah. You know, I think that's important. Yep. No, that makes sense. I kind of skipped past this. Some of the listeners may not necessarily know what a family office is. Could you just describe that a little bit? For sure. So essentially, yeah, family office is just a more sophisticated investment solution if you have a lot of money, essentially. So if you're worth $100,000, then you could walk into Bank of America. Maybe they'll open an account for you and put you in some ETFs or mutual funds. I don't know what they do there. But if you're worth $10 million, you have different needs. If you're worth $100 million, you have different needs. And so there's only three types of family offices, really. There's a virtual family office, which means you have half of an employee or one dedicated employee at most. Everything else is virtual. There's a single family office, which is usually for those worth 100 million or more, where anyone from three to 5 million to 100 million could have a virtual family office or higher uh, in net worth. But at 100 million more, you might want to have a, a real single family office, which means two to four, two to 10 professionals just managing your capital. And then there's multifamily offices that serve you know, 20 clients, 50 clients, 100 clients, and it's not your own dedicated team. It's really a wealth management firm that's more holistic, more multi-generational, more tax-minded. And the whole point is that as you become more wealthy, the mistakes you make are much more costly, and you're much more likely to make mistakes because you have 20 K-1s and 50 LLCs, and you know everyone's asking for your time, and you have lots of employees. Yeah, thanks for that. And so now your company, you basically help people set up these family offices. And I I know that you've set up quite a few of them. Is that correct? Right. So family office club, you know, I started it 13 years ago with help set up about a hundred family offices. 
we used to do consulting on that. Now we just give that information away. We found that after 18 months, we run out of smart things to say on just <laughs> setting up of a family office. And the real value is bringing them investment opportunities. So now we just give away, hey, we'll help you formalize your family office, set it up, get the right solution providers in place. After getting to know you so well, we're not going to waste your time with a deal that doesn't fit your strike zone because we help you create it and define it. And then we'll bring them our best deal flow. and We take a profit share through that. So we do that through our investor portal, which is mm -hmm. called uh, privateequity.com. And we've got, I think, 77 or 78 investors registered there with an average net worth of $22 million. And we're bringing our, our best of the best deals from our family office club community uh, of several thousand professionals to them that we think are kind of family office quality deals. Okay. And I guess that would lead to the next question is, what are the qualifications that you would say an opportunity might be a qualified opportunity for one of your investors or the investors group? Sure, sure. I think there's two answers. One is that we have over 2,000 investors registered with us with the family office club. Only 78 of them are paying us performance fee to kind of like help them manage their direct investment allocation. So there's two different answers because there's two different types of investors we work with. At the core level of Family Office Club, we have all types of investors that are looking for all types of investments, really a full spectrum. But the more specific answer is that the families we're working with most often are really looking for investments in the niche where they created their wealth. So it might be specific to healthcare or manufacturing or consumer products. I think that'll always be the case because they know that area best. Or they're looking for relatively conservative deals that give them a moderate return or moderate income for a relatively low risk. Lots of the times, the amount of money they put into an angel investment, it's not in the area where they created their wealth or into real estate development, like roundup development, which might have higher returns but a little bit higher risk is usually five to 10% and you know, usually five to 7% with most of my clients actually. And then most of their wealth going into investments are really going to things that are just going to return, you know, nine to 15%, 12 to 15%. But importantly, trust matters more than the returns. And I think everyone gets that backwards. A lot of times people say, well, my deal has great returns. You're never going to see this IRR. It's amazing. Honestly, the family office doesn't care about anything you just said, unless they know who Matt Shields is, who's on your team, what's your philosophy, oh, you care about values. You know, what are your values? Are those aligned with ours? What's your track record? What are you promising to me? Are you over-promising? Does what you say make a ton of sense and hit us between the eyes? I've been looking for the Matt Shields in the world and now we found you. Or do you just look like everybody else? I think that's more important than the, the investment return component. Virtus Technology is a custom business software solution provider. Are you tired of manual entry into an old system that creates more work than it helps? Does your company suffer from constant pain and frustration around its business processes? Do you spend a lot of time and money trying to hunt information down or figure out what is happening in your business? Virtus Technology can help solve all of this. We evaluate your current processes and then create custom software or mobile apps to automate and streamline your business process, eliminating a lot of those pains and frustrations. Unlike other systems, our goal is to digitize your current processes and systems so that your staff's learning curve is very small. If you're ready to take your business operations to the next level, give Virtus Technology a call today. 
Okay. So yeah, if you have a strong story and obviously a strong background, strong history and performance, being able to relay all of that information is obviously going to be probably the, the best way to be able to get the attention of a lot of these investors. Yeah. And I think that the short answer is that investors like either niche specialized approach that's clearly unique and compelling and uh, hopefully a good structure that's well aligned, but also they want to see kind of anomaly deal flow, like that one out of 500 deal. They want to believe that you have that. So, you know, not in the real estate space, but in the non-real estate space, a definition of an anomaly deal would be an investment in a uh, private holding company that has 50 million a year in profits and they pay out 12% returns to investors on monthly cash flow distribution and get a 12% return backed by a 50 million a year company serving as kind of the collateral house behind that is pretty unique. And we've only seen that once in 13 years. We're going into life settlements that just acts differently than the stock market or real estate, et cetera. So whatever niche of real estate you're in, if you're listening to this, has to be some geographical focus combined with your strategy that means that like there's literally only one or two people doing what you're doing, hopefully, that's really direct competition. Yeah, interesting. And so we've talked about a lot of what the investors like to see. What are some of the things that you've seen that are really you know, sort of off-putting, things not to do when you approach uh, some of these types of investors? Sure, following up two or three times within a day or within two or three days following up two or three times. Like I, I got an email during the virus crisis and they sent me an email on Friday and then on Sunday they sent me another email saying, hey, I didn't get a response yet in my past email, did you see it? I'm yeah. like, yeah, but I also saw 400 other emails come in and it might take me a week or 10 days. So I think being understanding of that, I think it's something that they don't wanna see that. They don't wanna see someone being stressed out or overly high pressure or annoying. They don't wanna see stretching of the truth and they don't wanna see you promising the world because there's no way to over deliver if you're promising everything because then you're basically not respecting the risk that the deal might not go perfectly and that your spreadsheet math may not happen. And they, they won't think you're a professional if you're promising too much because of that attitude. They also don't like it when someone says something is very, very low risk, or I mean, I guess they really hate it when they say that something is no risk because it either means you don't respect the risk that does exist or you didn't even recognize that it was there or you're, you're, you're either gonna lose their money probably, or you're gonna steal their money, and you're just a fraud trying to say something's guaranteed when besides certain insurance products, you literally can't say that you know, due to regulations typically. So I think those are extreme examples that hopefully most people are not doing, but I think what a lot of people are doing is just saying the same thing as everybody else. And they say, oh yeah, well, we're a, we're a boutique multifamily investment sponsor, or we're a commercial real estate investment sponsor, or, you know, we buy CB class and we upgrade them at $7,000 a door and then raise rents and pull it for four to five years and provide that 17 or 21% IRR. I think like everyone has heard these types of things and whatever niche you're in a thousand times and it means nothing. And so I think people want to hear, you know, like they want to know you're not operating out of your mother-in-law's basement, even though you might be operating out of your, your basement this week or your own bedroom or whatever, because you have to because of the virus, but they want to know you have like a real team, a real track record, really unique strategy. And they don't want to, you know, otherwise they just don't want to waste their time. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of me too and people that are promising the world today that can't perform. So no, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Right. What would you say, what happens next? What do you see six months from now? What, any ideas, what may be on the horizon or things that you guys are, are watching? 
uh, as far as investments are concerned? Sure. I think that as long as we can pull pull out of this whole lockdown situation by the end of April, by May 1st or May 15th, the latest, then I think things are going to recover and go well. I think that some of my investors are were net sellers of assets before this. And if a Democrat gets elected, are going to go hard on selling everything and planning on a recession or a depression. So I think that some people are apprehensive about all of that and how Trump handles the rest of this crisis can impact, obviously, his ability to get reelected. But if, if he gets reelected, then I expect the markets to do decently well, assuming that this crisis doesn't go beyond May 1st or May 15th. I think a lot of people can pay their April 1st rent. Mm-hmm. May 1st, I think, is maybe much more struggle, especially for the people losing their jobs, obviously. And if it extends through the whole month of May and June, then I think we're in for like a very painful longer longer period of pain here. So everything else I could say is pretty obvious to anyone who's clued in in terms of, you know, how late we were in the cycle already and yada yada, like all the other interviewers that you talk to would probably say other similar things. But I think one important thing to note is that a lot of family offices might change their exposure and go to more to cash in the stock market at one point or be a little more picky on their hard money lending or their real estate investments at certain points in time. But just like you know, within your real estate niche, there's certain strategies that even if cap rates are low, you can still work that strategy and make a return and find that upside. And I think a lot of family offices have that mentality of even in a bad market, they can still make progress and make investments and go forward on things. So it's not like they stop investing completely. Got it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. One of the other things that I noticed about you is that you are in a number of different mentorship communities. Mm-hmm. What was the the drive behind joining these mentorships? I saw a few specific names, and I'm certainly fans of both of those or many of those people as well. Can you talk about a little bit why why you decided to go that direction of seeking out mentorship rather than just trying to do it yourself? Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. I can rattle off a bunch of little examples instead of going deep on one. But you know, at the beginning, I had an hour and twenty minute commute in Boston every day. And so I got all of the Brian Tracy books and there's a summary chapter at the end of the book. And I got a summary chapter and patched together all those audio files into one hour long MP3. And every day while commuting, I listened to this Brian Tracy summary of like 12 of his different books. And I got kind of brain burned into my brain. That led me to be successful on the capital raising front and working with investors. And then I studied uh, Jeffrey Gittimer a lot on sales training. I got to meet him in person a few times. And he told me that if you share information with people that can say yes to you and you do that once a week for one or two years, you'll be a local expert. And for three or four years, you'll be a regional expert. And over seven plus years, you'll become a global expert. And when I heard that, I'd never had heard the words family office before. I didn't, hadn't started the family office club yet. But since he said in his book, that was his biggest secret out of all of his best-selling books. That's his number one biggest secret in that one paragraph but he knew that nobody reading it would really follow it because that takes a lot of work. You know, I literally said, I'm going to be the son of a bitch that actually does it. <laughs> I didn't know how or when or why, but then uh, when I found the family office space, I just used that strategy. And, you know, now we're, we're one of the top three thought leaders for sure. And, and ultra wealthy families globally because of Gittimer. So I was on his podcast and I told him that, and I told him, you know, one day I owe you a briefcase of money just for that sentence. <laughs> and so that, that really changed my life. And then another funny story is in college, I lived on top in this house. Uh, and underneath me was this crazy guy that uh, I would just go work out with. 
And when I was working out with him, he's like, oh, you know, I'd broken up with my girlfriend at the time. And, he, and this is, it was so funny. He's like, he's like, so I'm reading this book on dating. It's like a dating advice book. And I was like, what are you talking about? That's so em- embarrassing that you even say those words out loud. <laughs> No, it's like, I mean, it means you're a certified loser in college if you're reading a dating advice book. And so he said, no, it's great. you got to read it. And so I read the book and it was all about influence and persuasion and how to just be more approachable and be a better communicator. And by using that, I ended up uh, meeting my wife when I moved to Boston by using the strategies that I learned in that book. And what, what was so interesting to me is when I started my business, I said, okay, I'm doing, you know, my first half year, we did 150K revenue and I did 300 some thousand the next year. And in that next year, I said, how do I scale this to seven figures? And I found somebody named Evan Pagan to train me and be a mentor. And I joined his guru mastermind events, he did workshops, the small group exercises, et cetera. And I was like, where do I know this guy from? But his advice is great. And, he would, and then he went into influence and he was David D'Angelo, the yeah. David Dating Advice book, but he changed his name for the dating advice space. It was like an embarrassing area for him, to have, for him to have a 30 million a year business built on. But he was amazingly successful. And he was a really key mentor that grew my business to seven figures. And I know it's like the longest answer ever to no, this is good. ask somebody. <laughs> but so the same person who helped me figure out how to meet my wife, help me grow my business to seven figures. Once I got it there, I joined EO. After three or three years in EO, I dropped out and I joined Strategic Coach and then I upgraded to their their top level program now, which I'm still in with uh, Dan Sullivan, mm-hmm. um, who's a great business owner coach. And I've just gotten a ton of value out of all those things. My entire business is built on the ideas from all those people I just mentioned, plus you know, Joe Polish and you know, Dean Jackson, Dan Kennedy, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All the old gurus there. That's fantastic. Yeah. Actually, Jay Abraham. Yeah. Jay Abraham. Yeah. He's another great one. Yeah. I, these, I grew up following all these same people. So, and, and part cool. of some of their masterminds and events and whatnot. So, so no, that's fantastic. So I, I kind of see you as having two types of people and correct me if I'm wrong here, that you would uh, interact with. Number one, there's the people that are you know looking for the investments, and then there's the wealthy families that are looking to number one either set up a family office or you know looking for the opportunities that you might be able to present to them. I guess let's start with the wealthy families first. What would be the first step that you would say that you would suggest that they take in this path of creating a a family office? Sure. Well, commercially, normally, I'd say register at privateequity.com and we can work with you. But uh, the, the genuine advice is that what you started with, with your question on values, is the most important thing. Before you spend money on anything, before you meet with anybody, no, none of the clients that have approached me, the 100 plus, had their values, their mission, their objectives documented. And I think that until you know that wealth creation story, how the wealth was created, why it was created, what the values are, where you want to go, what new reality you want to live in. And you just have that conversation with your family, your spouse, yourself several times. And you put that on a one page piece of paper until you have that, you shouldn't be hiring people and investing in anything because then you can't, you can't really say, Oh, does this meet, does this meet my values? Should I be investing in cannabis? Should I be investing in life settlements or in real estate? Or should I be doing hard money lending or this hedge fund deal? I mean, you don't know. And an advisor who takes time to get to know you, is not going to know if you don't know yourself, there's no way for them to pull that out of you because you haven't documented it yourself. So I think everyone should be thinking hard on that because otherwise you're just going to be disoriented and things are going to be fighting each other. So that, that's for sure the number one most important thing. And it comes right back to some of your other questions about mentoring, about 
you know, self-development and how important that is early on. I mean, all these things are connected to make sure you're, you're following the path that's going to be, that's going to give you the best ROI in your time investment, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely agree. And then you probably could give that exact same type of advice to a startup as well. People that are just getting started. Would you agree? Or is, yeah, is that... I think there's a slightly different twist on how to explain it maybe because it's such a crowded, a crowded space and uh, it can be hard to survive if it's too crowded with an investor. You just get worse returns if it's too crowded. Mm-hmm. Okay. We got 3% return. You're not going to go out of business. So I think it's even more critical to be unique and the both sides benefit from being unique. And so if you get to know yourself well as that first step, just like we just talked about, then you get to know your competition really well. You figure out the people who are shooting stars or big gorillas in the space, what have they gotten great at that's allowed them to become so successful and study them so you can adapt and like take a few of their strategies and their best practices and make them your own. But then you can also see where the gap is. And there's two types of gaps. There could be a white space where nobody's offering something that you know the investors want, or it could be something that you're ahead of the curve and you can offer something that nobody has gotten to yet. But the other type of gap could be that the big gorillas could be offering something that's really innovative, whether it's opportunity zone or an income only structure or something else. But if you know that a lot of investors really want that thing and they go out looking for it, the big gorilla, Goldman Sachs, can never be known as, oh, Goldman Sachs, we are the number one leaders globally in opportunity zones. That's never gonna be their tagline. Mm-hmm. So whatever your focus is, you can make that your laser focus and be known for that and brand around that, have your one-liner on that, give talks only on that. And the big gorilla organizations can never specialize to that level. So it's important to know yourself, know your competition to identify some, some gaps, but then know the investor set that you have natural access to, you most easily could be calling upon that you think would want your investments the most for the type of gap that you've identified. Mm-hmm. And if you figure out the desire that the investors have that's not being met by other people or the structure they would prefer as well as the gap and you only focus on your strengths, I think that trifecta allows you to cut through a lot. And then you're playing a game where others can't compete because you're only doing things for your strength that they're not doing yet or can't redefine their whole company to only do. And then you're targeting a one type of investor set and have things dialed into what they want, where most people just go after many types of investors and have a generic pitch. And so I think if you combine those three things, it just makes a really robust approach versus just having something that sounds like most other people in the same terms other people have, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned quite a few times in there, you know, knowing what the investor is looking for, what they would want. I guess, number one, is that part of the offering that your service provides? And number two, what would be the best way, I guess you can say, to uncover those desires that those investors might have? I guess maybe that's the ultimate question is. (laughs) Yeah, there's three or four things, three or four quick answers. One answer is that I don't want it to sound too commercial. So like we we have more free stuff than anyone else in our space. So like tons of people just use our stuff for free, honestly. And our YouTube channel, we're posting content every day, our our family office podcast every day. So part of it is listening to the investors that we put on the podcast that we put Mm -hmm. on YouTube and then listening to what family offices are really wanting overall. But the better answer is really to figure out who's predisposed to invest in what you're doing. I know you have a lot of real estate listeners, but one very easy example is litigation funding. If you have a litigation fund going to law firm partners, they're going to understand it. If you're selling medical office space, raising capital from dentists and doctors, they're probably going to understand it better than the random business owner investor. So figuring out who to go to as an investor set and actually focusing only on one type of investor, at least with 80% of your energy, 
and not giving up what's been working, instead double down on what's working and ignore almost everybody else. Then you can dial in your brand name, your one-liner, what's in your materials, are you meeting them at their hospital because they're a surgeon and they're working 24 seven, mm-hmm. or you meeting them on site at the real estate asset because they need to see it's real and walk in and understand how your strategy works, et cetera. And I think that because most people don't focus on one investor type, they don't learn as quickly. And they basically are diversifying their time with five types of investors. Well, then you're moving up five different learning curves. And then every once in a while you're meeting with the family office, et cetera. There's five different learning curves. If you only meet with one type of investor, like law firm partners that you have access to or something like that, or business owners, part of some association you're in, then it's really going to grow. Your the learning curve progress will go way up. And then the other thing is that we do a a lot of workshops in the family office club to teach people what investors want and how to approach them, how to attract them more importantly. And then we have a lot of investor summits and investor interviews that we're always recording every day as well. And so one of our workshops is on influence and persuasion since it changed my whole life. You know, like I already told you, I usually don't tell people the dating part of that story, but uh, uh, so it changed my whole life. So I do a six and a half hour workshop just on influence. And after my MBA, I took 10 courses on psychology at the Harvard ALM program to study influence more. And what they've found is that the more that you listen to somebody and then pitch and then suggest something, the more they'll be influenced by what you suggested because you actually listen to them first and nobody listens to anybody. And so by going into all of your investor meetings and asking 20, 30 questions and then suggesting something, you'll be far more influential. They've scientifically proven that. And it's like going to the doctor. If you walk in, they say, hey, take this purple pill. You say, oh, you haven't even asked me what's wrong yet. You know, how do you know this is right for me? It just seems like they're selling you a purple pill. But if they ask you 30 questions and tap your knee and take your temperature and do a blood test, they'll say, hey, take this green, purple, and yellow pills twice a day for three months. And you might not even read the label. You'll just go to CVS, pick it up, go home, pop the things in your mouth. And you don't know what's inside there. You don't know the side effects and you're just taking it because they're the doctor and they listen to you and they prescribed it. So I think it's about focusing, listening, and then like prescribing things versus just pitching people before you've gotten to know them. Oh, I love it. Yeah. No, it's all part of building that reciprocity too. Right. Getting, getting them to, to know, like, and trust you. So uh, no, this is fantastic. If people wanted to reach out, learn more about your organization or you know, just learn more about you, what would you what, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Or uh, the best way is just go into familyoffices.com. Familyoffices.com. We have uh, you know links to the uh, free podcast, we have links to our free book, we have a link to the free YouTube channel, we also have our membership options there, the investor mandate. So about 450 investors we've interviewed, we interview one every day and upload it there. So I think that's the number one simple place just to go and check it out. And our team's email is uh, clients at familyoffices.com. If anyone wants to shoot us a note, we're happy to schedule a call with you. Perfect. I appreciate it. Richard, this has been fantastic. I, I certainly have uh, learned a couple of things throughout this, this conversation and uh, we'll be using some of these things in our real estate investing company. So certainly appreciate that. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me on here, Matt. Appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for listening, and remember, pass the secret sauce.